Hey, good morning, church. This is Eric, and um, I forgot to record the podcast on Sunday, so I'm just here at my home, and I'm going to do it here at my home. I'm just going to kind of work through the teaching the best I can, I'm just kind of going for my notes and recording some thoughts. So if you're listening, uh, thank you so much, and uh, appreciate you, and um, yeah, I hope that this uh, challenges you and blesses you. Uh, we've been uh, working through the book of Mark, and in the book of Mark, uh, we are kind of here where Jesus uh, is going to talk about two kind of things next to each other. One, he's going to talk about exclusivity, and then the other piece, he's going to talk about extreme measures, okay? So exclusivity and extreme measures. Um, let's start here with exclusivity And if you have a Bible, if you want to go to Numbers chapter 11, uh, Numbers chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 24 through 29. Let me read this for you. And just a little bit of a setup here as we get into this uh, chapter in Numbers uh, 11. The Israelites are in the Exodus. They're in the wilderness wandering. They are leaving Sinai and they're headed towards Kadesh. Um, And in the midst of this, the Israelites are growing weary. They're starting to complain Um, they've kind of started running out of food. And one of the things that God's going to do is he's going to say, hey, Moses, I want you to bring 70 elders into this kind of tent of meeting, this tabernacle area, because he wants to speak to them, okay? And he is going to have them prophesy. Uh, Now, not necessarily prophesy in telling the future, but they are going to be seized with a message of God for the people. So these 70 elders seized with the message of God for the people. Now, watch what happens in Numbers chapter 11. We'll start in verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 24. Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Now, here's what's interesting. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, um, but did not actually go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, My Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders uh, of Israel returned to the camp. So again, that reply by Moses, Are you concerned with what this might do to me? He's saying, I wish I'd be thrilled that the Lord would give his spirit to all people, that everyone could be a prophet. Now, the passage in Mark 9 that we're going to start with uh, is going to kind of, uh, it's going to really echo this passage. And so we're going to start here in Mark chapter 9, verses 38. And uh, Jesus kind of, again, in this, in this section, Mark chapter 9 is the transfiguration they come down the mountain from the transfiguration. They heal. Jesus heals the, the man whose boy is possessed by a demon. Um, and then after that, he gives one of his passion predictions about his suffering and his death. The disciples argue about who's the greatest. And then we have this 
interruption here where uh, in verse 38, teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, leading up to this text, as we kind of mentioned, one of the more ironic pieces is that the disciples had just failed at demon exorcism. Remember, um, again, just earlier in chapter 9, when they're trying to drive out the demon of the man's son, and they're arguing with the teachers of the law about, you know, what's going on. And then after Jesus does it, they ask Jesus privately, hey, why couldn't we drive out this demon? And Jesus says, well, this kind can come out only by prayer. So in this passage here, just a few verses later, you have somebody who is actually driving out demons, right? And John's first response is, you know, this isn't good. What's going on here? This man, you know, he's not in the loop. He's not part of us. He's not one of us, right? And in this account, Mark really is what he's doing. His, he echoes that kind of narrative in, in the book of Numbers. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, man, I wish the Lord would give his spirit to all people, to everyone, so everyone could drive out demons, right? And, and I wish that anybody who's listening to this, anybody heard this, I, I wish my prayer would be like, I wish everybody would have this ability, this, this um, spirit anointing to drive out demons. Maybe another way Jesus could have asked it to the disciples, is the world a better place with more or less demon possession, right? Months ago, we talked about uh, demon possession. One of the things about demon possession, again, I know we kind of start thinking about the exorcist and, you know, kind of fantastic Hollywood sorts of things. Um, but months ago, uh, we had kind of talked about demon possession as very mundane or common. Tim Gombas had this great quote, and he said that it's easy to think that anger and resentment, and you could fill in lust or consumerism or fear or busyness or control, are so common that demonic involvement seems outlandish. Yet consider how irrationally we behave when we cultivate resentment. We can hardly think straight. Our desires for revenge become overpowering. What's gotten into him? Something has come over her. We become violent and abusive and the devastating, long-lasting, and far-reaching effects of unchecked anger and jealousy are just awful. They're evil, right? And so again, would the world be a better place without anger and resentment and consumerism and fear and busyness and control and lust and hatred. I wish that the Lord would put his spirit on everybody to help drive out those demons that exist in our society, right? Another way to think about it, like a more contemporary way to think about it would imagine I had a neighbor, right? And this neighbor I knew was an alcoholic. He, in addition, was a workaholic. Um, he was abusive verbally, sometimes physically to his kids. But then all of a sudden one day I run into my neighbor and my neighbor is completely different. 
and he talks about how he was delivered from, you know, he's stopped drinking. He's created some boundaries around work. He's gone to see some help about his anger and his, his control, right? And I said, well, what happened? What was the, the thing? And he said, well, I got, I got delivered at the, the Baptist church right here in the neighborhood, this fundamental Baptist church, right? Or could be a charismatic Pentecostal church. And my initial thought is not like, hey, amen, so good. But my initial thought would be, oh man, I got to get my church elders together and we need to go to that fundamental Baptist church. We need to go to that charismatic church and stop them, right? And again, this would be insanity to think like this, but this is kind of the thinking that the disciples are having. Part of this is really helpful to consider how these passages, again, think about how these passages regarding exclusivity would have been received in the early church communities, right? Gamba says in his commentary, quote, it is useful, however, to focus on the effect of this episode on Mark's varied audiences. Just as the disciples must face how they relate to other groups of disciples, this account confronts communities of Jesus followers with a warning about exclusivity and the issue of how they should relate to other churches. So again, this passage, one of the things that it does is it helps function, especially in the early church, especially in church communities. How do we relate to one another? How do we kind of get along with one another? What attitudes do we have with one another, right? And Jesus is again calling us, I wish that everyone had the spirit of God on them, right? Just because they are not so to speak for you doesn't mean they're against you, right? Anyone who does even a cup of cold water in my name, right? Certainly they have not lost their reward. Now, on to extreme measures. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 50, um, We'll start in 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. That verse ties obviously more closely with the verses on children in verse 36 and 37. And then Jesus says this, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Um, one of the kind of first things to talk about here is actually the word hell, which in, in this in this passage, Jesus is using a Greek word called Gehenna. And Gehenna actually means the Valley of Hinnom, right? The Valley of Hinnom. It is in this kind of southeastern corner of Jerusalem. You can Google it and you can find different images of that in different maps. Um, you can tie this also into some of the wicked kings of Second Chronicles. After David is uh, has the kingdom, then his son Solomon takes over. The kingdom divides. You have these various wicked kings that kind of um, take over. And some of these kings offer 
sacrifices to different gods. They even sacrifice their own sons. They, they, they do child sacrifice in this specific valley, this valley of Hinnom. And this area becomes associated with the most horrific images of divine judgment. When Jesus is speaking about this Gehenna, this valley of Hinnom, it's basically the town dump. Trash would be dumped here. It was always burning with fire. Wild animals would come and eat the scraps. There would be, imagine wild animals fighting over these scraps and the gnashing of the teeth and the fire that never goes out, right? So Jesus is speaking of a specific place here, this Valley of Hinnom, right? And then we kind of have this idea of hand, eye, foot. What does the hand, eye, foot mean? Um, There's a couple ways to kind of understand this. One way to understand this would be to think of uh, it as being representative, right? The representative would be uh, that the hand is like for stealing or for killing, right? The eyes would be for lusting or, you know, wanting certain things, right? The feet are taking you places that you shouldn't go. Another way to kind of interpret this hand, eye, foot is they are sinful actions that need to be cut off or eliminated in a dramatic fashion, right? Again, this is kind of probably the very classical understanding. Another way to understand it, N.T. Wright had this thought, and I thought this was really helpful. They are good things that break you from God. Your body parts aren't inherently evil or sinful, but there are good things in our lives that can take us away from God. Again, that we need to cut off, that we need to eliminate. Um, Another interpretation of the hand, the eye, the foot would be how communities need to deal with elements that foster exclusivity, destructive loyalty, or prideful greatness. Think about this in context of Mark chapter 9. They kind of understand this in the larger context of Corinthians 12, the body of Christ, right? So there's different ways to understand the hand, the eye, and the foot. One of the things that seems really clear about this passage is that Jesus is not being literal, right? We do not, or we have not, or I have not encountered any Christian ever missing body parts because they decided to cut it off in the name of Jesus, right? We understand Jesus's message here as as hyperbole, right? And when we understand his message as hyperbole, as metaphoric, it allows us to understand his message. So for example, if you said, I was so hungry I could eat a horse, you're not really actually going to cut up a horse and eat the entire thing. Or if you were to say, I went to the DMV, it took forever, right? These are hyperbole statements that are intended to let us know that somebody is extremely hungry or it took an extremely long time. The problem is, I think when we use this hyperbole or we understand Jesus's message as hyperbole, really then we just take that hyperbole and we rationalize it and we excuse it aside and it just loses a little bit of its bite. We don't really take Jesus all that seriously because we know he's being metaphoric, because we know he's just, you know, kind of using this in, in, in an extreme way. But there were a couple quotes that I just kind of want to end here with 
that really kind of help sharpen um, and kind of articulate what Jesus is actually saying here, right? The message underneath these extreme measures. So for one is a quote by David Garland. uh, And David Garland says this. He says, quote, Jesus, however, is choosing deliberately harsh, scandalous imagery to alert the disciples that their lives tremble in the balance. Indifference to others, inducing them to sin and a lackadaisical disregard for sins in, in one's own life, imperils one's salvation. We must be careful not to mute the imagery and muffle Jesus' alarm, end quote. And I was really struck here, again, about the alert and the alarm words. Jesus is alerting us and he's alarming us, right? That our lives are in the balance. And if we're not willing to at least consider extreme measures, if we're just comfortable and confident in however we're living, we are severely missing the point of discipleship. N.T. Wright says it like this, quote, Discipleship is difficult and demands sacrifices. Many today speak and think as if the only purpose in following Jesus were to find complete personal fulfillment and satisfaction, to follow a way of path, follow a way of path of personal spirituality which will meet our felt needs. That is hardly the point of discipleship, right? End quote discipleship is difficult and it demands sacrifice. And that middle part, you know, and even sometimes I can slip into this, right? To write or to speak or to think as, as if the highest goal, as if what we're called to on this life and following Jesus is some sort of personal fulfillment and satisfaction, uh, personal spirituality that just kind of makes me feel good about myself. That is hardly the point of the discipleship. Dale Bruner says this, He says, quote, the repentant discipled life often hurts, and we must say this to ourselves and to our pleasure-seeking church more often. But discipled hurting is only for a while. Its long-term reward is life. Genuine discipleship will, it does hurt, but consider the rewards, end quote. And one last quote from a guy named Rob Bell who wrote a book about this, uh, man, quite a bit ago, maybe about 10 years plus 10, 15 years ago. And it was called Love Wins. It was pretty controversial. But he has a really interesting piece here on this passage. And he says this, quote, Jesus uses hyperbole often, telling people to gouge out their eyes and maim themselves rather than commit certain sins. It can all sound a bit over the top at times, leading us to question just what he's so worked up about. Other times he just sounds plain violent. And then he says this, but when you've sat with a wife who has just found out that her husband has been cheating on her for years and you realize what it's gonna do to their marriage and children and finances and friendships and future and you see the concentric rings of pain that are going to emanate from this one man's choices in that moment, Jesus's, don't, Jesus's warnings don't seem that over the top or drastic. They seem pretty spot on. Gouging out his eyes may have been the better choice. And, and kind of interjecting in the middle of this quote, 
you know, taking a little bit of what he was saying about the wife who is cheating, right? And maybe you could, could, we could interject, if you ever have been with a family who's just found out that their child has been molested by a relative, and you realize what this is going to do, and those concentric rings of pain and suffering that are going to emanate from this choices, right? Or you see the story of a mother that I've recently read about, a mother in Utah who was abusing her six children. And you see the concentric rings of pain and suffering and torture that are going to emanate from this woman's choices. Or if we watch the horror of young men using guns to kill innocent people, as we saw not too recently in Kansas City, but we've seen again and again and again and again in our country and in our world, right? Jesus's warnings here don't seem that over the top or drastic. They seem pretty spot on, right? Gouging an eye out may be the better choice. Cutting off a hand may be the better choice. Rob Bell says this, end of the quote, quote, some agony needs agonizing language. Some destruction actually does make you think of fire. Some betrayal and abuse and violence actually feels like you've been burned up. And some injustices do cause things to heat up. Let me close with this. I had been thinking about, um, you know, where does that leave us with these extreme practices, these extreme measure passages, right? I had this idea of radically practical, which is a bit of an oxymoron, right? Because I don't really have an answer for that. I don't have a way to where I can take Jesus's extreme call in some situations to discipleship and, and just make that practical. But maybe the Holy Spirit does, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's nudging you. Maybe he's calling you something as extreme as, I need you to leave your job. You've been doing this and it's not the right fit for you. And it's just time to, it's just time to let it go. Maybe it's extreme. Maybe you just need to go delete your social media accounts. They've been draining on you. They've been frustrating you. They've been upsetting you. They've been painful to you. Maybe it's just time to delete that out of your life. Maybe the Holy Spirit is calling you to give extravagantly to someone in serious need. There's somebody in your life. There's an organization. There's somebody who's hurting. And Jesus is like, hey, I need you to give to that person. And you're going to give to that person. And it is going to financially affect you in an adverse way. But I need you to do this. Maybe there's a call to wake up at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and spend an hour in quiet time reading and praying and seeking God. Maybe you need to see a counselor. Maybe it's to seek out accountability. Maybe you need to confess and come clean. But I will pray as we end this teaching that the Holy Spirit somehow speaks to you and calls you and invites you in some extreme way to find a new path forward in your discipleship. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.